If you'd like, you can turn in your Bibles to the book of James. We're going to be in James chapter 1. It's on page 1011 of your little blue pew Bibles. And if you want, you can put a bookmarker there and leave it there in the pew because we're going to be in James starting this Sunday all the way into July. You can be reading James at home and in your Bible studies. But um, as we prepare to look at James chapter 1, let me ask God's help. Lord, we thank you um, that you're not silent, but that you speak. And we do believe that Scripture is God-breathed by your Spirit. And now we ask that that same Holy Spirit would come and speak through this Word to your people to guide us, encourage us, and equip us to live in such a way that pleases you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus had siblings. Do you know that? Younger brothers and sisters, or you might say half-brothers and sisters, people born to Mary and Joseph after Jesus came along. And they didn't follow him, at least not that we can tell during his life. And in fact, in one place in the Gospel of John, we're actually told that not even his brothers believed in him. However, one of these brothers by the name of James had something happen to him after Jesus' resurrection and he was converted. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus, in Paul's list of all the people Jesus appeared to after the resurrection, he says that Jesus appeared to James, then to all the apostles. So somewhere along the way, James went from seeing his brother Jesus as an ordinary guy, perhaps even a lunatic, to recognizing him as Lord. Notice how James begins his letter in verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's just stop there. If you were the brother of Jesus and writing a letter, wouldn't you be at least a little bit tempted to introduce yourself? James, Jesus' younger brother, and a servant of God. He doesn't. But notice what he does say. He says he's a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now there's a lot in this little title. James, Jesus is the name James would have known his brother by. And now he's putting two words around Jesus. He's putting Christ on the back end, which wasn't Jesus' last name. It meant Messiah. James now sees his brother as the Messiah. And before that, he says, strikingly, for a Jewish man to talk about being a servant of God, Yahweh, and then say, and I'm servant of the Lord, Jesus, was radical. He's come to see his brother Jesus as more than his brother, but as the Lord. So James was converted. Some of you have been converted. And he grows to prominence in the earliest church in Jerusalem. He's actually called a pillar of the church in Jerusalem by Paul. And in history, in church, people, in church history, people refer to him as James the Just. James the Just. And he pastored people. He cared for people. And he even wrote a letter. And we have that letter. It's open in front of you. And I think that's striking. Just to note, out of the gate, we have a letter from the brother of Jesus. It's called the Epistle of James. Now, we're going to be in this for the next several months, and I'm going to walk about in the first 12 
verses of chapter 1 today, but to situate us. What was going on when James wrote this letter? People think he might have written it really early in the 40s. You know, the events in Acts are happening in the 30s and 40s and 50s. He might have written it really early. He could have written it in the 60s of the first century. But this is a window into the experience of some of the first Christians. And notice, I want you to notice what he the, the term he uses to refer to the people receiving the letter in verse 1. I don't want to just fly past this. He says, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Now, what does that mean? This is technical language for James coming from a Jewish background. And it would have called to mind the image of Israel as 12 tribes, But not 12 tribes nestled into the promised land, but dispersed. That word dispersion, literally diaspora. They're scattered. This happens in 700 BC when the Assyrians come in and attack. It happens under Babylon. In 70 AD, just shortly after James wrote this, the temple will come down and the Jews will be once again scattered. And they'll go all over into Europe, into China. They'll be dispersed. And you need to feel this, that... To be in the diaspora meant that you had been thrown out of your home, probably only taking the things you could carry on your back. You had been separated from friends and family. You were living in a place you never thought you would live, never wanted to live around people who probably didn't want you to live there. Maybe they didn't speak your language or know your traditions. You are categorically not at home. You can't can't see Jerusalem as it were. I think James is saying literally and metaphorically Christians now are part of the people of God and literally some are being dispersed, scattered about, but metaphorically this is the experience of Christians. You're not really at home, not completely. And this is an important context for the letter we're going to study because it means that There's trials and difficulties Christians are facing, and it seems when you read between the lines of James' letter that he's concerned with the effect of hardship on the authenticity of Christianity. He's worried that some people are going to leave the faith, completely backslide. That's how he ends his letter. He says, some of you will go and and you will bring people back to the faith who have left. And he will also say throughout that he's really concerned about this kind of halfway diminishing of your faith. You see, there's, there's more than one way to walk away from the faith. Some are overt, but some are far more subtle, right? It's just become too hard. So you're, kind of, you're just going to kind of turn the dimmer switch down. You're not going to obey everything in the Bible. You're not really going to follow Jesus. I mean, you're not going to outwardly say you're not a Christian, but effectively you're not. And so you see this note in James, this cry to authentic, holistic faith. He says things like, don't be just hearers of the word, be doers of the word. Faith without works is dead. He's calling on these people to a fully orbed faith. So I think a theme you could think about that might hold our whole sermon series together. If you wanted to say, what is the letter of James about? It's about this. James is about dealing with life as it comes at you, not as you wish it would be. It's about dealing with life on life's terms. It's about coping with life, navigating it, having the wisdom to know how to deal with life as it comes at you. More specifically for James, however, is he's saying that for Christians, because of our faith in Jesus, we're supposed to deal with life differently. 
How a Christian deals with life should look different. So really what he's asking is, Christian, you who claim to follow Christ, do you deal with life any differently? Do you deal with suffering differently? Do you deal with poverty and riches differently? Do you deal with your words and your speech differently? Do you pray differently? Do you love differently? Does your faith make any difference at all? Now, this is a relevant question. One, because I think if you are a Christian, you kind of wouldn't mind being an authentic one. I know I'd like to be, and I'm not always. But it's also important for the witness of the church because the world is watching. A survey done in 2016 of 2,000 Americans who don't go to church, they're not churchgoers, they're not particularly religious. Um, In this survey, these 2,000 Americans were asked, under what conditions would they be more likely to actually listen to a Christian? What would make you more interested in listening to what a Christian had to say? The survey asked, here's what the unchurched said. If I saw them treat others better because of their faith, be it in person or online, or if I saw them caring for people's needs because of their faith, I might be more inclined to listen. Or if I saw them happier because of their faith. The point is, none of these people are saying if their teaching was more clear. They're saying if their lives were more compelling, I might listen. And so I want us to dive into the book of James and just ask, do we deal with life any differently? And if you're, if you're not a Christian, you're just curious about it, this is a great opportunity for you to simply ask the question, how do you deal with life? How do you cope with ups and downs? How do you do discernment? How do you value money and value others? How do you deal with life? And you'll come to see that Christians are supposed to deal with life differently. Now, where should James start? I imagine there's a ray of things going on in the churches. What topic should he start with? I think where he starts will tell us something about how he organizes thoughts in his head. Do you see where he starts? In verse 2, he says, Count it all joy my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. James starts with trials. In other words, he's saying Christians are supposed to deal with difficulty differently. So right out of the gate, you could say as a first point, if you're going to talk or think about how you deal with life, you need to begin with how you deal with trials and difficulty because that's really where the rubber hits the road. Anybody can deal with success until success becomes a trial. So what James is saying is, how do you deal with difficulty? This is where he wants to begin. And he'll work this theme in different angles, all the way down to verse 12, where he seems to come back to it when he says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. So this is what's in the background in verses 1 through 12. Now James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials. So In in its simplest form, if you ask James, okay, James, how do Christians deal with difficulty differently? It's like a tongue twister. How do Christians deal with trials differently? He would say one word, joy. The world only knows sorrow, regret, despondency, frustration, anger. You need to have joy. Now, that's paradoxical and it doesn't make a lot of sense. 
So we need to do some work to figure out, what do you mean, James? Are you being glib? Are you being insensitive? Remember, James' own brother was crucified. James will see his friends martyred. He will be martyred. I mean, James doesn't have a small view of hardship here. What do you mean by this, though? So here's how I want to walk through the rest of our time. First, I think we just need to spend a little time to make sure we understand what joy means and what it doesn't mean. So first, we just need to define joy. What does James mean that you're supposed to have joy in trials? And then secondly, we're going to look at two ways in this passage where I think James sees this joy developing, like how it works, how you click into the socket and start to bring it into your life. Two ways that you functionally begin to experience joy in a trial. But first, we just want to be clear on what it means. So joy, what does he mean by this? What does the Bible mean by joy? It can often be a term, I think, that's misunderstood. Now, I can remember as a little boy um, in Sunday school learning the song, I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Down in my heart. I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Down in my heart to say, you know the song? Like we kind of chuckled at these things, but the, people thought that this, this song was supposed to start to teach little people that down, way down in your heart, not on the surface of your feelings, but way, way down in your heart, you have the joy of the Lord. Joy is not the same as happiness. It's not that it doesn't like happiness. But in fact, joy is a very different thing than happiness. The biblical notion of joy is deeper than an emotion. It may involve emotions, but it runs deeper than that. Just like faith may touch on your emotions, but it's deeper than that. Joy is a spiritual state. It's a theological reality. Joy is rooted in God's feelings and God's actions towards me, not in my feelings and my actions towards God. Joy is rooted in the fact that in Jesus, God has said he is for me forever. So biblical joy is the awareness of the heart that nothing can separate us from Christ. The world can take everything away from you, job, family, health, except Christ. The world, nothing in it, And nothing in the heavens or in hell can take Jesus away from the Christian. This is what Paul says in Romans 8. I'm sure that neither death nor life, angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Joy is the unlosable presence of Jesus. Here's an image for this. This is not a perfect analogy by any stretch, but it might be helpful. Picture a young child. You know, children can get really upset. And picture a young child sitting on their bed, crying beside themselves, and they're all alone. And then picture that no one comes into the room. That's a picture of an atheist suffering. There's no one there. There's no one to cry out to. Nobody's going to come. On top of your sorrow is meaninglessness and aloneness in the cosmos. But for the Christian, a mom or a dad walks in the room 
and sits down on the bed next to the child. And the mom or dad, they don't, they don't explain away why the kid's upset right away. It's their mere presence that communicates to the childlike mind that somehow there is this loving big person that can make things better, that I trust. I don't need answers right now, but their presence somehow makes me glad underneath my grief. Biblical joy is the unlosable presence of Jesus. Now, the presence of joy does not mean the absence of pain and sorrow. Sometimes Christians can make the mistake of thinking that it's our moral and theological duty to deny pain. You know, we meet, so we don't mean to, we meet someone going through a hard time, just turn it to praise, just turn it to praise. It's like the Bible's full of grieving and lament. Read the Psalms. It's okay to sometimes sit down, put on sackcloth and rub ashes on your face. Like, that's okay. The Bible's not saying that we can't grieve. Think of Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus. What it's saying is, and this is why I think James uses the little word count. Do you see at there beginning of verse 2? Count it all joy. He doesn't say feel it all joy. Count means consider, calculate, do the math, think it through. What he's saying is when you put this in the bigger perspective of the presence of Jesus, you need to realize that your pain is neither purposeless or permanent. And there's reason, therefore, James says, to beneath all the other horrific emotions to have joy. And I now want to turn to ask a little more specifically, so how does this work? How, how do you activate your heart to feel this joy? And I'm going to suggest more specifically that James gives us two ways to do this. The first has to do with understanding. The Christian deals with trials differently because they they understand differently, and this helps them feel joy. And second, the Christian deals with difficulty differently because they ask differently. What they start to ask for is different, and this is a cause for joy. So understanding and asking. And just a footnote before I go any further. You know, I'm just aware that um, there's people in this church who are going through really, really hard things. And I don't mean as I move through this sermon to act like this is simple or there's some sort of formula. Hey, just go home and do this and you'll feel this waff of joy. There are some things we go through that are so mysteriously hard, we can barely hold on. And I just want you to know James is aware of you. The Bible's aware of you. Jesus is aware of you. And I don't mean that this is some simple formula for how to be happy in sorrow. I think this is an indestructible truth about how not to fall into despondency of meaningless and hopelessness in the midst of whatever pain you're in. Notice James says various trials. You see it there in verse 1 when you meet trials of various kinds. This means whatever trial you're in, just put it in this bucket. He's intentionally being very broad. Maybe you're experiencing a trial because you're a Christian. You've had to break a relationship off because of your faith. Or maybe you're experiencing a trial just because you're a human being. You got cancer. You went bankrupt. You lost a job. Put it in this bucket. He says, when you meet various trials of various kinds, count it joy. Now, now here's how this works more specifically. First, the Christian is to understand differently. We're going to see this as we work through verses 2 through 4. 
They think differently. The word count at the beginning of verse 2, as I mentioned, has to do with the way the Christian begins to perceive and weigh things. Then at verse 3, Paul says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So here's the logic of this. Paul's saying, here's something you need to do. Counter all joy when you're in trials. And now he's going to give a reason. For, verse 3, here's the reason. Paul, give me a reason. Why am I supposed to have joy and sorrows? Verse 3, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So something's being produced. Something's being built. Verse 4, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So in a trial, James is saying, you need to understand differently. This is not purposeless. This is not hopeless. He's saying, God is at work building you, the end of verse 4, to be complete, lacking in nothing. Whatever else is happening in your trial, I can tell you this, God is working on you. He's working on you. Now, what's the main thing James thinks we should be happy about that God's cultivating in a trial? What's the main thing? It may surprise you. It's steadfastness. Paul's saying, be joyful because in your trial, God's producing steadfastness. That word comes up three times in our passage. You see it there in verse 3, testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Verse 4, let steadfastness have its full effect. And then in verse 12, as James kind of caps his thought off, he says, blessed is the man or woman who remains steadfast. So this is the gold nugget. James is like, you may not have been thinking this when you woke up, when you were woken up thinking, what do I want to get out of this day? What do I hope happens to me this week? You probably have a long list. Right at the top of it, steadfastness. James is saying, God wants to make you steadfast. Now, what does steadfastness mean? Steadfastness means the capacity to hold out or bear up in the face of difficulty. It's the idea of endurance or perseverance. Steadfastness is the competency to deal with life on life's terms resolutely, to not be tossed about by every whim and every wave, every time your back goes out or someone cuts you off or your kid walks away. Every time something happens, he's saying there's a way to be steadfast in this, not taking away the pain, but a certain type of steadfastness. Now, the interesting thing about steadfastness is you simply can't get it by reading about it or hearing about it. It doesn't work that way. And you can't know if you have it until you exercise it, right? Think of the analogy of uh, a marathon runner. A woman training for a marathon. In order to run a marathon, she knows she's going to need a lot of endurance, but she hasn't ran before. So she's pretty sure. I mean, she's just sitting on her couch right now. But if you ask her, hey, do you think you have endurance to run a marathon? She's like, I really don't know, but I doubt it. Well, how would you find out? Go outside and start running. Maybe she can run a mile. Then she starts to train. She has to put herself through regular tests and trials. Five miles, then 10, then she does 15, then she even does a 22-mile one. And she's building something that she couldn't build without running, without the trial, and it's endurance. But she only knows if she fully has endurance to run a marathon if she what? Runs a marathon. This is how the spiritual muscle of steadfastness works. You simply can't develop it by reading about it. 
You have to be put into a trial, just like you would do with one of your kids. If they show promise with an instrument or a sport or academically, you'd think, well, we better find new and harder tests for them so they can develop and grow. So James is saying the the first reason that you should counter all joy in whatever hardship you're in today is because God loves you enough. He's like that coach who took notice of you and said, I actually think she has potential. I'm going to work with her after practice. And you think, wow, the coach thinks I'm good. The coach thinks I might actually be able to be good. So if you're in a trial, from a biblical perspective, God is saying, this person has potential and I'm going to develop her or him. So I wonder if if you have been through trials that have tested your faith. And I wonder if you've ever had the experience now, this can, can get into spiritual pride, but I wonder if you've ever had the experience of thinking, I think I've got some steadfastness going here. You know, you've been through a couple rodeos, you know, and you're, you're tossed into what you think, okay, this is the, kind of the wash bin and I, I'm going to drown. And all of a sudden you're getting thrown around in a really hard circumstance and suddenly you put your feet down on a rock and you're like, oh, I, I can do this. I can do this. I can survive this. You become a person where the job could could go up or down. The kids could be with you or walk away. The marriage could be up or down. It's not that these things don't matter, but somewhere deep down, you know that Jesus is for you. You know, Job was the great example of this for the Jewish people. Job lost everything, his health, his finances, his family, sitting there with sores and pus coming out of his face. And his wife comes up to him and says, would you just curse God and die? And he won't do it. He won't do it. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives. My Redeemer lives. You feel the tenacity. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. I mean, picture how pathetic Job looks. And something wells up inside of him. And he says, after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. And my eyes, my eyes shall behold him and not another. Don't you want to be like that? Count it all joy. Count it all joy if you're going through a trial. Knowing That the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And steadfastness, when it has its way, produces completeness. So that the people of God are lacking in nothing. So that's the first thing. We know in a trial that Jesus is at work producing steadfastness. The second thing is that, now this is, we know something. The second thing is James turns to we ask differently. We'll see this in verse five and eight, what we ask for. But, but I'm curious, when you're going through a hard time, if somebody could read your mind, what are you asking for? Make it stop. Lord, relieve it. Get me out of this as fast as possible. I don't think there's anything wrong with asking for relief or deliverance. Paul does, remember? 2 Corinthians 12, Paul has a thorn in his flesh. We don't know what it is, but it's a trial. And he says three times, take it away. And God doesn't. And then Paul needs to learn to ask for something else. And that's exactly what James puts in front of us in verse 5 when he brings up seemingly out of nowhere, you see it there, the theme of wisdom. Where is wisdom coming from? Oh, James knows 
If you're going to live in this world according to God's ways and you're going to learn to navigate trials, you are going to need a wisdom that is not human. This is why he says in verse 5, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. Now, what, what exactly is wisdom? We don't have time to dive deeply into this, but it's more than having facts in your head. Wisdom is more like an intelligence of the heart. Biblically, wisdom is growing in the ability to be able to obey God amid the complex life situations where the rules and the facts just don't simply apply. All those gray areas, you don't know what to do. There's more than one option. You don't know how to feel or think. You know, you've got your temperament. You're trying to work through that and you're just not sure what to do. Wisdom is the person pleading with God, I don't know, please make me wise. Now James says there's a certain way to ask for wisdom in verses 6 through 8. He warns us, he says, but let the person ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways." Now, this can be really misunderstood. Is James saying that you have to have perfect cognitive belief to get anything from God? No. Is James undermining Thomas in John's gospel when Thomas says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief? No. James is not talking about mental faith. He's talking about the heart's allegiance. And this is why he uses the phrase double-minded down in verse 8. That word double-minded could be better translated as double-souled. That's literally what it says, two-souled. And what James is saying is if you come to God with one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom and you're asking for wisdom, but really what you want it for is to accomplish your own ends, don't expect him to give it. I mean, some of you have gone kayaking or canoeing, right? Down by Georgetown, you've gone in off the dock, you've gotten the Potomac, and you can picture the person for the first time, right? They got one foot in the kayak and one foot on the dock. And this just ain't going to last. You can see it. So James is saying, if you've got one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom, you need to first of all get both feet planted firmly in the kingdom. And what that simply means is we can't ask for the wisdom of God if we're not willing to submit to the will of God. You can't be like, I want your wisdom on how I can accomplish my goals. First, you need to say, I want your wisdom to fulfill your purposes for me. Lord, direct my attention to who you would have me be. Direct my attention to what you would have me do. Thy will be done. That's the posture of a person who asks for wisdom. You need to have God at the center of your life to be wise. The fool says in his heart, there's no God. The wise person puts God at the center. You know, I could say so much more about the, the theme of wisdom and how it works, but just, just briefly say, pray for this. I wish I could say more about it. Ask for this. It says the Lord gives generously to all who ask without reproach. Ask God to show you the way. Ask him to help you think and understand things, to help you see, to understand a situation, to help you know which step to take next. Ask him regularly. Ask him daily. Um, I remember once I had a difficult decision. You know, for me, it was difficult. Everything's relative. But it, it had to do with, um, and I've mentioned this before, Choosing between a graduate school program and a job, one was making money, one was losing money, and it had to do with living in two different continents, and I had both options, and I had no idea what to do, 
And I was in my 20s, I was all bent out of shape, you know. And I wrote to a mentor, a, a man, a pastor back in, in, in the United States. I was living in England at the time. And he wrote me an email and I've always kept it. And here's what he said. This, this, was, this was wisdom. He said, first, Sam, remember that because of Christ, you're going to be alive forever. And therefore your long-term and real happiness does not depend on the next few decades. Second, Try to distinguish between where your motives are fueled by faith in God and passion for his kingdom and where they may be fueled by fear of man and selfish gain. This did not give me my answer immediately, but it told me the type of man I needed to be to do anything worth doing for God. And then I needed to kind of get in the raft and trust that it was taking me where God wanted me to be. So Christians deal with life differently. They deal with trials differently. They deal with them with joy because they understand God is at work and because they know what to ask for and they believe that he gives. Can I just close with a very brief story? Um, I don't want to take too long here, but you, some of you know who Dietrich Bonhoeffer is. He was a German pastor and he, he was very gifted. He was unusually gifted and he lived during the time when the events of World War II were unfolding and he, he was caught up in a, in a movement in Germany to try to overthrow Hitler. He saw the evil of um, the rise of National Socialism there. And at one point he went to America and he was teaching at a university in New York City and he had an opportunity to pursue a great tenure track and have a career there in New York City and he would have been fine. But he had this tug on him and he thought, I I'm supposed to go back and be with my brothers and sisters in Germany and get involved in trying to overthrow Hitler. And he didn't know what to do. And he writes in his journal on June 15th, 1939, the whole burden of self-reproach because of a wrong decision comes back again and almost overwhelms me. I was in utter despair. You see, he's in a trial. Now, he prays. He reads his scripture, he seeks wise counsel, and he listens to the still small voice of the Lord speaking upon his conscience in all of these things, and he makes the decision to go back to Germany. And what happens is he ends up being put in jail, and he ends up being executed at the age of 39. What a waste, we think. What a waste. Not at all, though. Writing to a friend in his prison cell, with the end being imminent, he says, I heard someone say yesterday that the last years have been completely wasted as far as he was concerned. I'm very glad that I have never yet had that feeling even for a moment, nor have I ever regretted my decision in the summer of 1939, for I'm firmly convinced, however strange it may seem, that my life has followed a straight and unbroken course. It's painful to me to be sure that the improbable is happening. But I've quite reconciled myself to it. I believe that nothing happen, that happens to me is meaningless. And in the light of the great purpose serving the Lord, all our privations and disappointments are trivial. However thankful we may be for all our personal pleasures, we mustn't for a moment lose sight of the great things we are living for. There is a man in sorrow and trial and pain who touched his feet to the rock and knew an indestructible joy. He was at the very center of the purposes of God. And James would write over his life and any like it, 
verse 12, and with this we conclude. Blessed is the man or woman who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life.